Hello and welcome to another episode of Stream Wars, our thought leader series, where we learn from industry experts about the latest trends and challenges from across the convergent TV space. Hosted by Michael Beach. Today, I'm joined by Julie Alexander. She's currently the Director of Strategy at Parity Analytics. Julie is a prolific writer and is a must read for me. In our talk, we cover a variety of topics, including the success of Disney W1, the upside of ad-supported streaming, and the economics of content production and unscripted programming. Please enjoy my conversation with Joey Alexander. Joey, welcome to Screen Wars. Thank you so much for having me. How are you doing? Um, great. How about yourself? Can't complain. Can't complain. Excellent. Well, you are one of my absolute followers on Twitter. Uh, someday you got to tell me how uh, to be such a prolific poster, and I've been trying to avoid your feed since Sunday because I haven't watched Westworld yet. Uh, but I have to ask, how much time do you spend watching streaming? It's a lot. It's it's funny because when I used to work as a reporter, I actually spent much more because I just had to for work purposes. Like it was, I was trying to keep up with not just what was happening on the business side, but also trying to keep up with what they were actually putting out so I could give some kind of informative opinion when I was writing. Now... I watch a little bit less, but it's still, you know, a couple hours a night. And then throughout the day, I have CNN or CNBC or something else on streaming from like uh, YouTube TV or Fubo TV. I have both depending on which one uh, I need in that in that moment. So it's the TV is kind of on constantly in my in my house. Yeah, we had uh, Brandon Katz on last year and it was like going through his feed to get ready for it. I mean, uh you know, all things Star Wars, all things Marvel. And I was kind of amazed. And then kind of going through your feed, it's like all those things plus Westworld secession. Uh, I mean, you're up on everything. So, I mean, I think the, the gym helps like going, having a place where I have to be, uh, you know, I, I always end on cardio and running for like 45 minutes. And instead of watching CNN or something, I'll just throw on an episode of something I wanted to watch. And I just didn't have time to. So I, I think that carving out that little 45 minutes throughout the day actually helps me stay on top. And then my friends are all, you know, huge, huge entertainment media nerds who tend to work in entertainment and media. So it's kind of just constantly on and, and being talked about. Yeah. Well, you know, I'd love to get like some backstory on um, Parent Analytics current kind of day job today, and then kind of how you ended up there. I know you've had a, you know, several stops along the way. Yeah. So I'm currently the director of strategy at Parrot Analytics. I will have been here. It'll be a year actually in a week or so, week and a half. Um, it's So what my job is, is I specifically work with the our, our clients uh, who I won't get into, but I help them kind of figure out or help them contemplate their strategic roadmap as they think about everything from content acquisition and content licensing to distribution to partnering with other um, potential brands and, and third-party partners and kind of just thinking about how they want to grow and um, retain their user base both in the U.S. but also especially globally within EMEA, within APAC, um, within LATAM. Um, and Parrot Analytics specifically takes this theory of, which I really love, which is this idea that we used to think of entertainment and media in silos. We used to think of it in terms of this was television and this was film and this was gaming and this was user-generated content and this was books or publishing or whatever it might be. And now the way I like to think of it is those are all little gateways into a larger supernova of online content, right? And you know, it's, it's, it's great. We're recording this on the 15 year anniversary of the iPhone. And I've been thinking a lot about the iPhone and kind of what that did irrevocably for content and entertainment and how we, you know, why and how we consume content the way we do and, and our relationship to it. And so all of that is a long way of saying that we exist within this attention economy, where the idea of the of value of a show is no longer just how many viewers did it get, you know, within the eight o'clock, nine o'clock primetime spot, so that the advertisers are happy. The question is, what is the significance of someone's relationship to one or two shows on your platform that is going to, you know, be the main reason that they spend $15 a month or that they'll spend $17 a month if you asked for it in order to have access to those shows, you know, or, or, or the films, or, or how do they view certain talent? And that's why they want to be able to sign up for something. And the economics of the attention economy and the economics of an inflated level of supply with a much more focused um, 
uh, commandeering sense of demand within the audiences globally is the question that we try to help our clients figure out is how do you break through all of this noise? And it's only getting noisier and not just within traditional linear entertainment that is film and television, but within games. Like how do you both compete with games, but work with games? How do you both compete with TikTok, but work with TikTok and, and user generated content? And where are these opportunities in white spaces in an entertainment and content world that is so much more intimate and interconnected than ever before and, and much more massive. Um, so that's kind of what Parrot does and what I do. And to answer your question very briefly about how I came here, I spent a decade working in media um, as a writer, then as a, as a kind of content strategist for Vox Media, Vice Media, Ziff Davis, a couple of other ones. But I started off with the Toronto Sun where I grew up and back in Toronto, Canada. Um, and I really, really loved it. And then at some point, I became really obsessed with Disney. And, and not in the sense that I feel maybe a lot of other people become obsessed with Disney, which is the content, which is great, um, or the parks or whatever it might be. I really became obsessed with this idea that they were underreported as a monolithic giant. I, I felt that it was this company that was strategically doing a lot across every foundational base to kind of reach consumer attention. You know, what I was speaking about just a few minutes ago on all these different mediums all around, all across the world. So I started writing about it and I had a, at a Disney focused business newsletter um, called Musings on Mouse. And I was writing about this kind of weekly, these, these, these questions I had about Disney that I would get from talking to, you know, sources or friends who worked in strategy, who worked in research, who worked in biz dev, who worked in content programming. And about a year into that, maybe maybe a little bit under a year, I started getting emails from different people, different companies who now work, who are now working with companies that are our clients at Parrot, uh, and they would say things like, you know, companies will pay you to do this. Like this is like the questions you're asking, the data you're looking into, the you know, the answers you're trying to figure out is what we pay people to do. And so I started thinking like as much as I really loved media and that was a big part of my life and that was a big part of my identity, I really wanted to get into the other side of it and move towards the biz dev and the strategy side and really try to figure out the answer to those questions without having to report on it um, and be giving access to data that I wasn't going to get as a, well, as a reporter, at least at the level of reporting I was doing. Um, I'm sure a great reporter like Lucas Shaw might be able to get that data, but I was not getting that data. And so I've been here for a year kind of trying to figure out the answers to those same questions. Yeah, that's great. And what uh, I love, I mean, you know, kind of our day job is on the the advertising front where we try to help marketers kind of figure out the same question of, um, you know, how do all these sources play together? Where, like, what what kind of data is a, is Parrot pulling in to, uh, I'm always amazed by just the quality of, you know, insight and, anal and visualization that's there, but where where is all this coming from? So we take in two billion, about 2 billion data points all the time, constantly from a number of various sources. And then what we do is we rank the weighting of those sources to ensure that the most, um, I don't want to say important, but the most maybe uh, integral metric to a specific question is weighted higher so that we are getting the most accurate answer. Um, so that's everything from uh, piracy services like Popcorn Time, which have you know millions and millions and millions of users. Um, and the reason that we look at that specifically is because I think in the US, it's so easy to be US focused and be like, whatever is happening here is, you know, that's the main answer. And although American companies obviously do need to be thinking about that, and the US is a large market, a lot of these shows are not available internationally. A lot of these movies that are being produced are not available internationally, or if they are, they're being rolled out slowly. And so we work with a lot of clients who are in you know, Europe, who are in Asia, who we're based, our headquarters is New Zealand. Like we have a very global focus on this. And so when we look at some of the piracy stuff or some of the you know kind of uh, user shared film and television, we get really interesting data points about actual consumption patterns outside of the streaming services because we don't get direct data from the streaming services um, that uh, and like, you know, neither does Nielsen per se, but they kind of have access to something. So everyone in the in the I call it, you know, kind of race to figure out the metrics of streaming. Everyone has their own different data points. But so we start there. Then the next thing is um, user generated content about specific 
shows or movies, like whatever it might be, because the level of demand for that show is higher than say a, a, a like on a Facebook page or a tweet, right? Where you might be saying something about the show or, or about a movie or about a, a talent, but you're not necessarily engaging with it. So we rank the data points up from, are you showing brief interest in it to how heavily are you engaging? And the way I like to best explain it is to take you through a typical user journey, right? So let's say someone, let's say it's you, Michael, and you, someone sends you a link for a new TV show and they're like, you got to check this out. First thing you're going to do probably is watch the trailer. You're going to click on the link, watch the trailer. That's a data point because we collect from YouTube API. Then you may go into IMDb to see who's in it. You know, you recognize someone you want to see who's in that cast. That's a data point that we look into. You might look at the Wikipedia page or you might go to the Facebook page. That's a data point. And those are all on the lower side because although you're engaging, you're not necessarily consuming, nor are you actively showing interest in consumption. You're showing active interest in potential. So then you go higher from there. And then you get into, well, okay, are you um, writing a series of tweets about why the show is really great? And we can judge sentiment based on, on social media posts as well. Are you creating content on TikTok that is edits of these things? Are you doing all these other really interactive, engaging um, proof of consumption activities that really help people understand like, and then really promote the show. And then final, the, the most, the heaviest weighted thing is consumption. So from piracy, from whatever uh, sources it may be, people actively watching, people actively saying like, I want to spend three hours doing this. And so we kind of just judge by those, but it's 2 billion data points globally. Amazing. Well, yeah, kind of we're heading into earnings season. Um, I guess, you know, really high level question, what's your overall thesis right now for the streaming industry today? And kind of what do you see as the, the biggest challenges? Uh, I know it's a really broad question, but. I think the biggest challenge facing a lot of the major streaming plays players right now is figuring out how to turn streaming from something that is additive into something and, and supplementary into something that is formative. So I think if you look at companies like Amazon, Netflix, Apple, Netflix at the highest of that level than Amazon, Apple, there is no supplementary in terms of content, like in terms of video content, there is no, there's nothing you're supplementing. That is the formative product that you're offering. Now, of course, you can argue that Amazon Prime Video and Apple TV Plus are supplementing, you know, a larger Apple hardware business and a larger Apple ecosystem um, services ecosystem, Amazon Prime Video, obviously supplementing Amazon Prime. Uh, like, so they're, they, they are supplementary products, but on the video side, they're not. If we look at Hulu, Disney Plus, HBO Max, Peacock, Paramount Plus, these are additive, or they still feel additive and supplementary to the overarching, to the larger business, which of course is broadcast, it's cable, it's theatrical, uh, it's, it's whatever it might be. And I think where they're really going to struggle with that is on the content programming, like the content that, you know, the content allocation side on the marketing side a little bit, um, those questions on the budgeting side, those questions about we still have to support this very, very lucrative linear television business. You know, for all that we talk about the death of pay TV and it's certain pay TV is certainly declining quarter after quarter, year after year at a, at a, at a very steady level, but it is still a, a very lucrative business. I mean, you look at discovery, right? Discovery comes in and buys Warner brothers uh, or Warner media rather. And cable is huge to discovery, right? Like that is, that is this whole business and it's a very lucrative business for discovery. And so I think there's this question of, how do you support that system while also while also investing heavily in streaming? And how do you not take from that system to pour strictly into streaming? Because you still have to pay, you still have to reward, and you still have to support that system. So I think there's this misunderstanding that if you look at an over a huge conglomerate, let's use um, let's use Warner Brothers Discovery. If you look at a, at a company like that, I think there's a huge misconception that they can make all their money in linear and then just invest it into streaming and go like, cool, like we've made money off these deals on TNT or, or, or whatever it might be, other revenue on TNT, the revenue on TBS, the, the revenue that we made on the, all the discovery side of things. Let's just pour that into whatever HBO Max Discovery Plus product ends up being. And you can't because you still have to support that. You still have to make deals in that space. You're still fighting for sports rights. You're still doing all these other things. Advertisers still want to be there. And as much as advertisers also want to be on HBO Max, like there's a healthy audience on cable that they really, that they still obviously want to, re um, to reach. And so I think this, the, the promise to the street, if you take a company like Disney, 
the promise to the street is we're going to grow our Disney Plus subscribers, you know, by two, three multiple times the multiples, uh, which is a wild growth to project, you know, by fiscal year 2024, which is a wild growth to project to the street. And it's a way to say, like, we want you to know we're invested heavily into this, you know, quote unquote, colloquial streaming war. Uh, and we are in it to win it. But at the same time, if we look at where the vast majority of Disney's revenue comes from, and if we look at where the vast majority of Disney spend is on the content side, like it's not Disney Plus, right? It's it, that Disney Plus is a, a part of it. It is a supplementary part of it. And I think what is really going to be affecting the, the earnings, which which is just a conversation, right, about the street's reaction to um, um, financials more than anything else, is this question of how long do you think until that flips? And that answer could be as, as simple as like seven, eight years. That answer could be like 15 years. Like that answer, like we don't know that answer because we don't know necessarily when all these companies internally are saying, okay, this many pay TV subscribers are finally no longer, you know, we don't longer count them. They're not there anymore. Now we can switch our, our full priority to this service. I think that's something you won't see necessarily on the Netflix, Amazon, Apple side. They can kind of operate as they are because those products are the main products for the for the video content side. And for Netflix, of course, it's their only product. The other ones, which are the larger question as they cut into the share of demand each quarter, that is where you're going to see, I think, a lot of questions. If I was an analyst on those calls, that's where my question would be focused. It is how do you envision this product becoming not just a priority in terms of what you want to grow, but when do you see it becoming a, a primary source of continued revenue and a, continue, a continued source of profit of profitability at the level that you're seeing with linear? And until we know when that change happens, I mean, why would they stop supporting linear, right? Like Disney just paid $75 million for the rights to F1, which was like 15 times what they spent in 2019 and the majority of those games or those races rather are going to live on ESPN linear, right? Like they're going to, like they're going to be on linear. That's not an ESPN plus play. It's not an ESPN standalone package for streaming play. That is an ESPN linear. We, we have a strong cable affiliate fee that we can charge. F1 wants to be there. That's what we're focused on. So I think that's my, would be my main question heading into earnings. Yeah. We look at, you know, advertising. We wrote about this a little bit last week, but, when you look at the you know, the delta between um, ad minutes per hour, right? You know, 75% fewer ad minutes per hour, but then you look at the CPM they're charging, maybe they're getting 10 or 20% higher CPMs on streaming. That math doesn't work, right? Because you, you know, you've got to get at least the same revenue per hour on streaming as you do on linear for that kind of trade to work. And then we look at it, you know, we see a ton of buyer behavior of like media planning and things like that. And they're still, you know, really undervaluing streaming video inventory, you know, it's targetable and measurable. And so for us, it's like interesting because you just see you're like, this model won't work unless these people are willing to pay, you know, three or four times per unit, what they pay on, you know, for kind of this mass reach product, they get on linear. Um, it's just really fascinating to see. Well, I think to your exact point, it's, it's almost ironic, right? Because what you're saying with the linear advertising is that you're going to get a wider reach. Like you're you're just going to naturally have a wider reach. There are naturally more people watching across the board, theoretically, on broadcast and then cable than there are on individual streaming services within the US, theoretically, right? If we look at the 77 million versus the 80 million, like it, if you kind of look at that. But to your point exactly, those aren't targetable ads. What you get with streaming is very, very, very specific um, uh, audience demographic profiles. You get very, very specific um, innate understanding of, of what audiences are consuming, how long they're consuming it, when they consume it, where like where they consume it, which is something that you don't necessarily get with the current system on linear. But I do think you know, and the other thing too is like the the uh, there's all these questions about the advertising play on Netflix and what does it mean? I think a lot of people forget that the ARPU for Hulu is like one of the highest in the industry. Like the ARPU is like twelve eighty eight or twelve seventy seven as of Q two for Disney twenty twenty two. Like that's a wild ARPU, and that's largely advertising. That's advertising coming on a product that has half the subscriber base of of Netflix, but about the same ARPU. I think it's like a dollar fifty difference. Um, and so Netflix, you know, brings advertising in if they see a bunch of advertisers flock to them, which I assume people will, because it's a great platform to be on, even with all of Netflix's troubles. I'm a very much, a, I'm a Netflix bull. I think even with all their troubles, they'll come out of it. Um, 
you know, that's a great place for advertisers to be in just in terms of, again, all that information plus the size of that audience. You know, that size of the audience is like 75 million or 70, yeah, 75 million subscribers in the U.S. and you can alone. And there's what, at last count, 80 million paid TV households, maybe a little bit less than that. Like that's that's a great place to be if you are an advertiser and you're thinking about that kind of one-to-one relationship of the reach of the, of the growth potential, but you're not going to get the direct targetability that you are going to get on streaming. And so I think as we see advertisers really kind of move over to the space and we see it happening with things like Pluto TV, we see it happen with freebie. We see it happening with Zumo. I think as we see more of those play out on the major um, um, streaming services and as the advertisers really start to kind of move over, we'll start to see changes in, in how companies then approach their streaming services and how they go to make those, again, not just a priority, but like an actual um, primary source of uh, continued investment and and revenue and profitability. And I think until then, and that, that's going to be sooner than the, than the other, you know, thing we were just talking about that because it's happening now. Um, and I think that will open up a lot of really interesting conversations and dialogue just about what the future of streaming looks like because the future of streaming if you asked you know people two three years ago what the future of streaming looked like based on what we knew it wasn't necessarily advertising i mean a lot of people in this industry said it's going to be ads um I, you know I, I know myself did i know alex sherman at cnbc did i know i think lucas definitely mentioned so i think lucas shaw over at bloomberg brought up like advertising kind of seems inevitable i could be wrong about that um you know, we there, there's an analyst, of course, and industry people are like, this is only going to go the way of ads. It's the whole joke is that we're just recreating cable, but in a much more fractured landscape. We're just taking the power away from one company, giving it to another. But that was the whole, you know, the promise of streaming for us, right, was the a la carte option. It was this way to get away from the cable bundle. And now we're kind of being pushed back into the cable bundle via consolidation that is out of our control via brand partnerships and, and third party partnerships. But also that was the goal of the companies, right? It wasn't just like, oh, well, we don't want to be um, on Netflix because we're losing money there. It's like, we don't want to have to give all of our, we don't have to give a portion of our money and our customer information to Comcast or to whoever else it might be, you know, to AT&T, like whatever it might be. We want to be able to own that information. If you are Disney owning the information on all of those viewers, when you run a parks business and you run a theatrical business and you are about to run a like metaverse business in some way is so, so important. And especially when you bring in advertisers, you have the relationship with those advertisers. And so I think there's going to be an interesting dialogue that comes up as advertising really pushes streaming into the next moment of like the, again, the quote unquote streaming wars. A couple of Disney questions uh, to go back uh, to your musings on mouse days. I guess first, what is your kind of quick take on the Bob Chapek extension? Yeah, (laughs) I feel like that's the question. Um, So, I mean, Chapek is, Chapek's a long-term parks guy, which actually, you know, is not necessarily the wrong person to have in the seat right now. He's a big data guy, big, big data guy, kind of kind of like Zaslav over at Warner Brothers, big, big believer in like we can use data to really make a lot of better decisions. Um, and on the one hand, he's probably right. And on the other hand, you know, the, the expression I always like to use is that data is a lighthouse. It can show you the treacherous path to not go down. And it can also show you a bunch of really great opportune pathways that you didn't even know existed. And you can go down and, and find the best way out. But the lighthouse only really works if the boat, if, if the ship and the captain on that ship can guide that boat safely into the harbor so that people want to get on the boat again so that they trust him or her. Um, and that ship captain in this analogy is your Kevin Feige, your Casey Boys, your John Landgraf. It is your creative executives who have the creative ability to say, like, I know what a good show is. I know what a good film is. And that's how we, you know, build our brand. Like, we're content people first and foremost. Um, so I think Chapek has issues on that end. I think Chapek does not have the talent relationships that a lot of other CEOs might have. Zaslav has, for, exa- for example, just kind of go back between those two. Um And Hollywood is an industry almost more than any other industry that is entirely built on relationships, especially when you're dealing with creatives um, and creatives are brilliant, brilliant, you know, stunning people, but they can also be a little neurotic. And I say that as a creative, like I say that as someone who is a, who considers themselves a creative and I, you know, worked in, I was a writer for nearly a decade. And I think those talent managing those relationships and, and knowing how to be a people person with different groups of people at, at a high level um, is something that 
he should learn how to do. But on the other side of it, the thing that really doesn't get brought up with Chapek, because there's so much negative PR that he's had to navigate, is like he's been great for the company's business. Like Disney is doing extremely well. You would not know this looking at the stock price of Disney. But if we look at kind of what that company has done quarter after quarter since the pandemic hit, which is when he came in as a CEO, he's managed to navigate them through the pandemic when he as in terms of overseeing streaming disney plus is the second largest streaming service in the world like on a mainstream level uh it's growing at an exponential rate if we look at what he's doing at the parks parks business is back to booming if we look at what's happening with dmed across the board which is disney uh, media um and, and distribution which kareem daniels oversees like if we look at what's happening on the um linear and broadcast side it's going great i think theatrical is another iffy question with Chapek about how he figures that out. And I think that's where he really needs to listen to his deputies. But all this is a long rambling way of saying that in terms of what a CEO should be doing for Disney, which is providing the best value to shareholders and to investors, he's great, right? Like he's 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 doing his job and, he, and he's doing it two years into it. He's still fresh to it. And with this with two large clouds hanging over his head. One, the pandemic, the macroeconomic reality that we're in right now, the negative PR, like like the constant, constant, you know, bad luck headlines that kind of keep coming in. And on the other hand, the other the other cloud that hangs over him is Bob Iger, right? Like I like no matter who followed Bob Iger, it would have been extremely tough. Whether it had been Bob Chapek or whether it had been you know Kevin Mayer who oversaw Disney was rumored to to potentially take over for um, Bob Iger. That's a tough act to follow. It's one of the most beloved CEOs in, in in modern history, and we don't really like CEOs as a as a group of humans. We tend to not trust them. Um, few exceptions, right? Steve Jobs, Bob Iger. Like there are some where you're just kind of like that. That's tough. That's a tough act to follow. It was a tough act for Tim Cook to follow when he kind of came into it. And I bring those two up because I think they're very similar. I think what you had with Iger and Jobs are these creative, extremely charming, extremely innovative, extremely intelligent um, visionaries who came into a company or in terms of in terms of Jobs case, created a company um, that really landed with this universal like love from customers, like a love for a company and a love for its products and a love for its content that goes beyond what so many other companies can do. And then who came in and replaced them were operational wizards, right? They brought in operational people. They brought in Tim Cook, who is a genius in his own way and is will go down as one of the best CEOs at Apple, if only because of what he's managed to do for that company in terms of profitability um, and, and his understanding that he needed to pivot away from hardware at a point where he needed to pivot away. And you go look at someone like Chapek and Chapek's kind of pushing Disney into this forefront of whatever metaverse future it is, the streaming future, the, the online internet future, all that, all that. It's a really difficult job to do. And on the business side, he's handling it well. I think he needs to figure out, he needs a team around him who can help him figure out how to do the public aspects of being a CEO, which are also equally important. The talent relationships, the deputy relationships, like those are all also extremely important. How to navigate controversies as they come up because they will over and over and over again. Um, but my my thought on it really is Chapek hasn't done anything that severe that should warrant him not being in the position from a business perspective. And now the last thing I'll say on this is that they renewed his contract for three years and I doubt that they're going to fire him a year into it. But, you know, Peter Rice, who was the head of, 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 of TV programming for Disney, signed a contract and like seven, eight months later was fired. Like, the, like people in Hollywood sign contracts all the time only to be ousted like a year later. So I wouldn't, you know, don't be too surprised if, in, you know, a year and a half, Chapek is, is out the door. But again, I think people need to separate the very public aspect of stuff that is happening with JPEG, which is absolutely a concern and Disney. And I hope the board is talking to him about it. And I hope he's trying to figure that out. I'm sure he is. And then the business side, which is his main job as a CEO is to provide shareholder value. And he's he's continued to do that quarter after quarter. Yeah, and I feel like there's love to get your take, but there's so much low hanging fruit. I mean, in the last year, you know, my family watched I watched, ton of Disney plus uh, we went to the Hawaii resort. I went to Disneyland, you know, a couple months ago and they're all three got like totally disconnected experiences, right? Where, I mean, you had the, the central brand tied them together, but from a data and bundle perspective, they weren't really connected at all. And I think they're just in such a, an amazing position to tie these pieces together. 
Yeah, and there's no question that that is what's going to happen. I mean, when they launched Disney Plus, I mean, this was still Iger, uh, but when they launched Disney Plus, the whole idea of it was that you know you'd get a Disney Plus thing, and that bundle would help you get a discount on Disney Parks, or you'd use your Disney Parks thing, and then you could go on into Disney Wish, which is their new cruise liner, or you could use your theatrical to like get a discount on Disney Plus if you bought I don't know an early ticket to Thor or something like all of that. Is going to happen and especially as we get into the future like within where gaming becomes even more important to disney than it already is you know i think that's the biggest question with disney is under chapek who's much more operational than i would argue Iger was um and who's kind of much more you know tech focused although i think Iger was toward the end of his tenure and i think if Iger was in now he would also be extremely tech focused his his investments outside of disney are very tech focused so i don't i don't doubt that he would be at the forefront of it as well but is this question about, you know, do you go back to trying to own games and making games, right? That was the biggest failure under Iger was, was video games. It was like they couldn't figure out how to make, publish, and distribute video games in a way successfully. And so they they stopped, right? They licensed. They partnered with EA. They partnered with Epic. They partnered with all these other different really great games makers with Lego who can say, like, we're going to make the game and we will publish it. And that's our end. You just, you know, we'll pay for the rights to Kylo Ren or we'll pay for the rights to Captain America, whatever it might be. But the end goal for Disney is always to have everything user connected. It is this idea of like, you will live in this world where there's almost like a Disney currency and then that Disney currency becomes part of your day, almost weekly currency or your daily currency or monthly currency. And that data that gets shared even more in an interconnected way helps them make even better you know, um, business de development decisions and, and not necessarily programming decisions, but distribution decisions and, and all of that, that helps Disney, you know, scale again at a, 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 in, in its next kind of, of iteration of the company. But I think there are a lot of things that have to happen first. I, the, the, the term I use a lot, um, I, I have a, a, a different podcast that I host and on the term I use a lot when we talk about why don't these companies do certain things yet is that I think a lot of them are still very much in triage mode. They're still very much in like, does the streaming service work if you're HBO Max? Like, does it, is it actually functional? Cool. Once we figure that out, we can get to the next question. I think if you're Disney, you know, there's triage mode across theatrical. There's, there's triage mode across the, the personnel. There's, there's triage mode with streaming. You know, how do, how do we ensure that this is like the best quality that we can make this, this product and that it makes people want to, you know, what's our, what's our, counter-programming strategy, what's our our distribution strategy, like all of those things are much more important than, okay, like, or not, I want to say much more important, I take that back, but are just as important as the interconnectivity of all the different, of all the different Disney products. And so they will get there and it will happen. Like you'll see things roll out and then they'll start interconnecting it. And that's always been the goal. Um, you know, Disney Plus was to own that relationship with customers. It was to own and make revenue uh, off their own content rather than like get making revenue off of selling their content or licensing their content to others. Um, and, and, and it's to connect all of their different verticals in a way that is set that is centered on data, right, on, on user information. So I think we'll see that happen in the next year, if not sooner. But I, I still think that company is very much in triage mode, like every other company is right now. All right, last Disney question, and uh, I think I, I hit the home run and got my uh, my nine year old daughter is obsessed with Star Wars, so no spoilers. Nice. Uh, we haven't watched the finale yet while she's been at camp, but Obi Wan a win uh, for for uh, Disney? That's a good question. No spoilers. Um, is Obi Wan a win for Disney? I mean, in terms of like engagement, yes, like straight up, yeah. Like they, there's a lot of people who tuned into Obi Wan. There is, it was mostly positive sentiment across the board. Um, it, 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 you know, brought back beloved characters. It kind of gave, I think, fans of the original prequels uh, the ability to kind of reconnect with these characters that they didn't think they would maybe ever see again on live action. And they, was able, and they were able to do it from the comfort of their home week after week. So in terms of that, when? The larger overarching question about Obi-Wan belongs to this umbrella of questions about what is Star Wars at this point? And I think my criticism of Star Wars has always been, it is the largest sandbox in the entertainment sphere. It, it, there's so much you can do with Star Wars. And for some reason, under the current guidance of Lucasfilm's creative, creative teams, they are tethered to the Skywalkers and they are tethered to Tatooine. And they are tethered to this like, 
conservative approach to the franchise. And I think what Star Wars really needs, which unfortunately on Disney Plus, it won't have a chance to do because it's such a foundational source of why people subscribe to that streaming service is what they're doing on the film side, which is take a few years and like really figure out what is the next generation of Star Wars beyond these characters that and and, and these and these very specific specific planets that we're trying to reiterate generation after generation after generation as still having the same kind of hold that they once did. And you know, when I was growing up, I was I remember being four or five, and and you know, in the nineties, and my dad showed me uh episode four like we watched new hope and then we watched empire and then we watched um uh oh my god why am i forgetting episode six but episode six um return of the jedi i remember watching those and being like oh these are cool like i i liked them as a kid but i wasn't in love with them and then episode one two three came out i was the right age for it and i was like oh this is my star wars like this is the star wars that i love and then the clone wars the animated series was really what made me fall in love with star wars then you have the new generation who kind of come in and they're like, Ray's my character, Finn's my character, Poe and Kylo, and, and that's great. But all of it continuously ties back to the Skywalkers. And so you're kind of like, okay, well, I'm going to watch these older movies. But I think for a lot of kids today, those older movies do not hold up for them that the way the new ones do it. They're just used to a very high caliber level of like visual effects and, and what's happening. And, and it's hard, I think, for younger kids to, to sometimes sit through those movies. Not, not all the time, but sometimes. And I think for what Star Wars... You know, what is successful for Star Wars? What is, I have a list of criteria for successful franchise development that I came up with for, for a few of our clients. And the thing about Star Wars is how do you move it into the next generation without necessarily having to tie it back constantly to the first generation? And how do you do this within different mediums and within different genres? So that way you create different entry points for people to come into and then explore within it themselves. So I think for Obi-Wan, Obi-Wan I enjoyed Obi-Wan, but like my question was really, what is the goal of this show? Because is the goal of the show to expand the Star Wars user base? It's not necessarily going to do that. It's not going to, you really are, you're going to attract fans who are very much into the, the, the prequels. Is the show going to lead to a massive jump in subscribers? Probably not because people who are coming in to watch Disney Plus for Star Wars already have Disney Plus. Is the show going to retain customers? Probably like it's probably a great retention play. Like, oh, I, you know, I was going to cancel, but now I want to watch Obi-Wan and, and Anakin kind of fight again or whatever it might be. Um, and so I think strategically, the question about Star Wars is like, what is its primary goal on Disney Plus at this point? And then creatively, what is its primary goal for this new generation, the, the generation now that came up, that actually came up after uh, episode seven, eight, nine, like this generation now, like how do you make Star Wars appeal to them in a way that doesn't tie back to Luke and Leia and Han, um, and in a way that takes advantage of all of the different types of mediums and genres and technological capabilities. And I think that's where Obi-Wan really failed for me. And I think that is the ultimate question I have about Star Wars. And so, you know, for Disney, it's a win in terms of like what it, it was engaged with people. Like they, I'm sure it retained subscribers. I'm sure there's, they saw a little, little bump in subscribers for it. People who may have canceled or people who finally signed up for it, um, whatever it might be. But, you know, is it a win for what the, for, for their strategy, you know, for the next decade? I don't know what else it did for, for, for Lucasfilm and for Disney plus other than give them something to put on Disney plus for, for four or five weeks that could compete with you know Netflix and HBO Max and the other. So I don't know. I think for me, it won for the moment, but it did not win the race. All right, shifting gears, I got one more content question. Uh, and I saw that uh, Parrot put out a kind of ranking of reality and kind of unscripted shows. Mm -hmm. And we were talking earlier about discovery and, and something I've been thinking a lot about is that the intersection of unscripted shows and or unscripted reality shows really punch above their weight when you kind of factor in the share of viewership versus the overall cost to produce. Um, is that kind of the right way to look at it? Yeah. I mean, so I think unscripted is, well, here's a great example of, for unscripted and what the power of unscripted can do for a lot of these, these services. So unscripted, uh, as you know, Michael, I know, um, very cheap to produce compared to live action, drama, live action, comedy uh, that are scripted. Unscripted is much, much cheaper. The total addressable market for unscripted tends to be much larger just because you can do 
10,000 different things with an unscripted. You can have a fishing show. You can have a house building show. You can have a cooking competition show, a singing show. You can have, you know, dating reality shows. It's just a huge market that, with what you can do in that space. But what's even better about unscripted, for, in my opinion, is that if we look at what Netflix is doing with Squid Game, it is an easy way to capitalize on a on a potential franchise and expand it past its original audience without necessarily um, harming the first part because it's so different. So Netflix puts out Squid Game, one of you know one of their biggest shows of all time, if not their biggest show of all time, I think still uh, it's huge success for them critically. It's like opened up the doors for people to watch South Korean content. Like it's a massive win. Netflix now has this opportunity to create a franchise. In order to create a franchise, you cannot have that much time in between installments. Like you got to kind of keep people's attention. The demand is, the attention is very short. Demand is even smaller when we think about the over, the, the oversaturation of supply. Demand is even smaller. So you have to, you have to keep on them. We know that they're in, that there's, that they've renewed um, Squid Game for season two, but that's not going to land until next year earliest, if not 2024, right? That's a long time for people to go and find something else to get obsessed over. So by the time Squid King comes back, they're like, yeah, I'm going to watch it, but I don't know if I'm going to necessarily be into it. So Netflix goes, okay, what if we do a reality show that is, you know, yes, like quintessentially ironic because of the whole purpose, the whole concept of the original show's message. But we're doing a reality show where they can win $4.3 million, which is one of the largest prize pools in reality show history. And they're going to reenact the... The, the, the games they had, they had to do, the challenges they had to do on the show. It's an easy win. That's an easy, people will want to tune into it. And people who weren't into Squid Game, but may, but like the idea of this type of competition reality show are going to tune into it. And then they might go out to the original Squid Game. So that's one aspect of Unscripted, where Unscripted really acts as a core way to build upon the audiences you have in your other genres and keep them engaged as you build out the franchise. And they take less time to film, less time to edit. They take less time to produce and they're cheaper. So it's it's a really great revenue play. On the other side of it, though, to your point about discovery, it, when we think about all these companies, or not all these companies, but if we think about the top three or four trying to build four quadrant services, where you've got um, male, female, above 25, um, below 25, unscripted appeals to almost all four of those demographics. It's like different unscripted programming. But in order to really ensure that you kind of have enough su supplementary content on top of the prestige dramas and the and the the big comedies that you're going to do and the, whatever else might be, you know, the sci-fi and the fantasy stuff that's costing you 120 million dollars a season, the unscripted stuff is what is going to get keep them is what's going to get them to stay. They're going to come in. They're going to watch. House of the Dragon, they're going to come in, they're going to watch uh, The Dropout, whatever it might be. They're going to come in, they're going to watch uh, Obi-Wan. Those things are finished within the span of four weeks or the span of eight weeks, or they're finished within the span of a weekend if you're on Netflix or if you're on Amazon, it's a binge drop. What is then keeping them there? What is the incentive to get them to open the app every single day otherwise? It's not necessarily going to be another big premium show. It might be, but what is going to get them to open up are two things. One is library programming, which is Friends. It's Seinfeld. It's The Office. It is, you know, that's why they have extremely low decay rate. Decay rate just refers to as the, the, uh, the shortening or the lessening of demand in between a show's season. So what, you know, you end up losing viewers or you end up losing demand as a show is off season. That just makes sense. What is the decay rate? Sitcoms tend to have much lower decay rate because like, people come back to think of new girl. People come back to it all the time. The other thing is unscripted programming. It is reality. It is competition. And people will come back to that and they watch it over and over and over again, or they start it or they, or they're, they're, they're involved in it. There's worlds like the real housewives and they're going to do all eight or nine different season series and do all the seasons. It's a great way to retain your customer's interest and engage with them for a fraction of the cost that you're going to do on the premium drama and scripted comedy side. And so that's why we're seeing a lot more of it. If, if it wasn't working, the companies wouldn't do it, but it con continuously works and it will continue to work going forward because there, it, the total adjustable market for unscripted, I would argue, is much larger globally than the total addressable market for like scripted series genre by genre. Yeah, I feel like, uh, you know, remember back to the you know, first time I saw Survivor and it was like kind of date myself here, but it was uh, so different. And then I looked up like a year later and it seemed like every show on broadcast TV was reality because uh, they figured out like the low cost. And I feel like it's almost happening in streaming now to, to a certain extent. 
I mean, do you see a, a limit to that or is everyone going to go, that's like the, the shortest hit for the least amount of content spend and we're going to almost see like an overcorrection that way. That's a great question. Uh, I think if you had asked me this question a year and a half ago, I would have had a different answer. Advertising changes everything, right? If we think about why, I, I had someone ask me this question they said, why haven't we got in like a law and order on Netflix? Like, why isn't there a show that's running for like 14 seasons that creates three other law and order spinoffs that runs for like 14 seasons, like whatever it might be. And I said, well, if you think about the economics of linear television, what did a show have to do? A show had to bring in viewers and they had to bring in enough viewers that they had a decent rating that the advertisers liked. And then the advertisers went, oh, we'll be in the eight o'clock spot, we'll be in the nine o'clock spot. We want to be on this show specifically. We really like it. So you get shows that can run, you know, five, six, seven seasons and they get syndicated and there's additional revenue. And at that point, it's like paying for itself. Uh, and so you have these shows that run forever. Because it's like the advertising and the syndication model allow the economics of those types of shows to really flourish. Now, not all of them, of course. We all remember pilot season, or if people are too young to remember, pilot season was a thing where networks ordered 40 shows and they axed like 35 of them. Uh, you know, this idea of like, we're going to put out an episode was, like, I mean, that was like an insanely bad system. It just never made any sense. But the shows that could thrive when they came out could run for quite a few seasons. I think about what the CW did, right? And the CW could have shows that ran for eight seasons, even if the viewership was not necessarily that high because they had some advertising and they could sell to international markets. And like that paid for it and they were just happy to keep it going because there was demand for it. So they just, they just kept doing it. Those economic models never made sense for Netflix because for Netflix, the question is efficiency, not like advertising and not, therefore like not necessarily just viewership. The question is, okay, this show brought in a million viewers. Great. How many of those customers 30 days later canceled their streaming, the, the, canceled their Netflix account? How many of those customers instead watched a different, this is called a referral value, watched another Netflix original? Okay, what about those customers who watched a licensed uh, original that, that Netflix has? How many of those customers watched... 50% of a show, 40% of a show, 80% of a show. And then how many of those customers are within a certain demographic that Netflix considers, you know, high risk or high reward? All of those equal an efficiency point. And the efficiency point is really what generates Netflix's idea of, okay, this is very valuable to us. Or this is something that we don't necessarily want to continue investing in. And because we don't have advertisers saying, actually, I'm specifically trying to target um, young men or, 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 you know, like older men over the age of 50, for Netflix, there's no reason to say, okay, well, let's do another season because, you know, this advertiser wants to be here and they're committed to putting their ads on it or whatever it might be. Uh, and we can just see how it goes. We can see if we can generate it. Now, as advertising comes in and as Netflix can increase its ARPU without um, price increases, as Netflix can start running ads before shows, which is what I assume was going to happen. They'll just do pre-roll because I can't see them splicing their shows up, especially their originals. Um, but as they start running these pre-roll, now there's additional revenue opportunity to say, why don't we let a show run for three or four seasons? Why don't we just see, like, there's somewhat of an audience here. For, we talk to advertisers, they're into it. We think there's really great sentiment. And although it's not taking the same efficiency point as a new show might, we want to see if we can build up our library because we're losing all of our long running shows as, as Paramount, as NBC Universal, as Disney, as um, Warner, as Warner Brothers Discovery starts pulling them back off our platforms to put on their platforms. Like if you ever look at like Nielsen numbers sometimes for what are the most watched shows on Netflix, you know, and of course Nielsen is skewed because a show with 300 episodes is naturally probably going to have a higher minutes watch than a show with 10 episodes. It does not actually translate to the value of those shows to the platform, but you know, it's always like Grey's Anatomy and NCIS. And these are shows that people come back to. They, they, I, I come back to Grey's Anatomy like once a year and it's like, I'm just going to rewatch Grey's Anatomy. And so uh, and part of that reason is because it's like 15 seasons. I can put it on. It's like my new sleep show. It's like, it's going to take me a year and a half to complete or whatever it might be. Uh, and then I, I can move on to something else, but I won't, I really won't have one of those long running shows and Netflix doesn't have any. So the longest time Netflix's efficiency metric never made sense for a lot of these shows to run eight, nine seasons. Now with advertising, the idea of series that couldn't exist on Netflix or, or a streaming service without ads like Netflix versus a type of series that can possibly thrive, I think means we'll start to see a lot of different shows that we thought didn't make sense on these streaming services really start to potentially make sense. And of course, that theory could be wrong. 
Uh, it could be that they try to do their own crime procedural in the Netflix way and people aren't interested because they've got Law and Order on Peacock and Hulu and they're happy with that. But I think there's more room to experiment without this like really stagnant fear of our efficiency metric for this title is plummeting and therefore economically it does not make sense for us to keep it going. Interesting. Well, uh, I could talk to you for hours here, but I'm going to uh, be cognizant of the time here. One quick question to wrap up. Looking ahead one year from now, what is something that to you will be different and is fairly obvious um, that most people are missing? That's a good question. I think, hmm. It's fairly, I don't, I don't think it's fairly obvious, or, or I won't say I don't know if it's a thing that people are, are necessarily missing, but the consolidation will continue at a rapid pace. And I know that feels funny to say now because um, the economy is, is not great, but a bad economy makes a really great investment for smart buyers with cash. It's, it's actually a, a prime time to buy if you have the ability to do so. And the thing that a lot of these entertainment companies need in order to scale is ownership of other libraries. It's ownership of other IP. It's ownership of competitors that they just don't necessarily think they can compete with. Otherwise, you know, a, a merger of equals or, or an acquisition can help them compete in global markets as well as the U.S. market. And so like a company like, a, you know, there's, there's a few companies that don't really want to put them out there um, in part because... I don't know if any of them are clients and so I don't want to, to get in trouble, but there are a few, there are a few companies who are right to see potential mergers and acquisitions happen. Um, and not in a bad way. I think there's a really negative connotation with M and A that happens because it feels, you know, like big whale eating small fish or it can feel like that. And I, I think I am of two minds, which is on the one hand, consolidation creating power players in a market is not great. Um, it's, it's, it's inherently not great. Uh, it's why we have antitrust laws. But on the other hand, I think the streaming space has almost been monopolized by Netflix for so long that in order to create a stronger competitive market requires a little bit more consolidation amongst the, the, the larger players. The niche players are kind of playing out the way that they're going to play out. But I think if we can have some stronger competition at the top, and you really get into this idea of of a, of a competitive market where, with competitive product and competitive pricing that will make the, again, colloquial, quote unquote, streaming wars much more interesting. You know, when Netflix really started to falter in demand and subscribers, there was this analyst who said the streaming wars are over. And I said, what an odd thing to say. It's just proof that the market is, is doing what the market does. The streaming wars have just begun. If, if Netflix is being is bitten into, yep. that's exactly what is happening. And so I think we'll continue to see more consolidation. I think there are three or four companies that are right for it in the next year, year and a half, especially as the economic turmoil continues, and especially as their earnings may not be as favorable and therefore their valuation will, will, will drop a little bit more. Um, and I think that will be exciting to see happen and, and, you know, terrifying all at once. Consolidation is both exciting and terrifying all in, all in one breath, but yeah, that would be my thing is is I would be shocked if we didn't see much more big consolidation happening. Not Warner Brothers Discovery big, you know, I don't think I don't think there's many companies left to do it at that size, but notable consolidation that really changes the power economics of of the streaming space. Excellent. Well, this has been a, a fantastic conversation. I am uh, grateful for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Screen Wars. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. You can find out more about Cross Screen Media at crossscreenmedia.com. Please don't forget to sign up for our weekly newsletter, State of the Screens. You can find us on social media at Cross Screen Media. Join us next time for more insights and analysis straight from the experts.